Welcome to the Banter Savvy Podcast. I'm BanterBot, and along with your hosts, Rebecca, Tyler, and Matt, we're here to bring you your weekly reliable and interesting source of stories, humor, and news. Today, Matt will be telling us the story of his great uncle who was a parachute trooper for the Allied Air Force in World War II. Everyone crack your beers, and Matt, you can take it away. Okay, listen to this. My great uncle Robert Peatling was at the Battle of Arnhem Bridge where he was stranded in Holland for four months during World War II. But as I was writing this episode, I felt I couldn't really do it justice because I'm trying to think of how it would come across. Unfortunately, my uncle, my great uncle, sorry, he passed away in the early 2000s, so we couldn't exactly get him on here to tell us the story. So I was searching through the internet and I found him doing an interview back in 1999, a recording that goes into great detail about him as a kid during the beginning of the war, his describing how he went to Arnhem Holland and his escape back to England. I've created some of the snippets for us to listen to. The first part will be him talking about hearing Neville Chamberlain declare war in Germany, how he felt during the war, how he felt knowing that the war would be coming again, and his memory of the Blitz. Felt bad, Matt. Yeah, he did feel bad. On that Sunday, the 3rd of September, 1939, and I immediately went to the ARP post on my cycle and became a messenger for the local ARP. We were in Harringate, which was in the borough of Tottenham in those days. And the my first job was to take round to the air raid precaution wardens who were out on their various roads and I took them a handbell, each a handbell, which they were going to ring if the if there was gas dropped, which was the fear at the moment. We thought the Germans would, would drop gas on us. I was quite excited. I wasn't old enough or bright enough to realise how, um, how awful it would be. But I thought, it's exciting. I'm, uh, I'm now doing something. I've been brought up to be very patriotic. You know, in, in those days we went to school on the 24th of May, Empire Day, and I wore my scout uniform. We were, it was the um, end of the Victorian era. That was still with us because my grandparents had been proper Victorians. So, yes, it didn't bother me at all that we were at war. One Sunday afternoon, I think it would have been 1940, I was um, out in the streets when a German fighter came over and machine-gunned the railway lines or in, in, at Hornsey. And that was the first I knew about it. I think it was um, that winter they started coming over and... Uh, and 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 dro- dropping their bombs. Um, it wasn't very nice. I think the the most danger to me was the shrapnel from our own anti aircraft guns that were dropping. They were firing up into the air, and um, and then you heard after the explosions, you heard all the tinkling of the shrapnel dropping on the roof and in the in, in the. In the roads, yes, not very pleasant. At, at the bottom of the road in Warwick Gardens, there was a a, a landmine um, 
exploded and blew all our windows out. So, so we're sad now. Yeah. Um, really notable quote right off the bat there. It wasn't very nice. <laughs> yeah, right. That yeah. really sums it up. Kind of, kind of poignant. Five words, one contraction. Yeah, not very nice. So. No, I, I, I like the fact that he reflecting back. You know, how his naivety was when he was when he was a kid. You know, saying, "Oh, it was wonderful. It was great to go to war." You it's know, exciting. Yeah, patriotic. Yeah. Patriotic. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, looking back as we go deeper into the story, what actually things that actually did happen, how naive he was, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit horrifying. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. It's interesting to see the job that he had. Was Did I hear he was a messenger yeah. for the Air Raid Precaution Wardens? That's correct. ARP, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was wondering That's about ARP. That That's what that stood oh, for. Okay. Air Raid Precaution yeah. Wardens. Yeah. Hmm. And it really is, it says a lot for the technology at the time uh, that what they did as a form of that was he, he gave everyone a bell, and if they were dropping gas, you ring the bell. Yeah. hope you can hear it. And and hope you're nearby and, and hope you can hear it. and Do what, though, right? You know, like bunker down, I guess. You know, yeah, go into the bunkers. Hold there. your breath. <laughs> yeah, hope for the best. Fuck's yeah. sakes. Just be aware of it, I guess. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. The alarm has gone off. You will now die. <laughs> yeah. Good Lord. Yeah, no, I'd, uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine. I don't know how I would react in that situation. No. Yeah. I, I think probably, knowing what I know now, uh, not excitement. <laughs> Definitely not, no. Back then, probably excitement. Yeah. Yeah. Unknowing what else was going on in the world at that time as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, do you guys, uh, he mentioned a holiday, Empire Day. Do you guys know what that is? I don't know. I don't actually know what that is. No. no. Um, but they they went to school on the 24th of May, which I thought was uh, was interesting as well, because that's not what happens in the UK now. It's September when school starts. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. It started in May. So Empire Day was obviously like, celebrating the em- the British Empire. So I, I, guess. I would have assumed that, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or any other empire, you know, the, yeah. the Mongolians or whatever. Yeah. You know. when, when did the Empire Strikes Back come out? <laughs> A couple of years later, I think it was. Yeah, just yeah. one or two. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll have to look into that, actually. don't know. Very interesting. The next section is about him joining the army and where he was placed and his experience in parachuting into Arnhem and making his way to the to the city of Arnhem. Uh, I was 18 in 1942, and uh, I was called up for the army. I'd previously tried to join the Air Force. I, I wrote to them and uh, wrote to the Air Force and said, I'm willing to be a, a wireless operator, air gunner. And uh, the answer came back, you're much too young, just leave it and we'll send for you. And so I joined the ATC, the Air Training Corps, and. Uh, Thought I would get into the Air Force, but uh, uh, when my call-up papers came, I went and uh, it was for the Army. I went to Fulford Barracks in York. It was the um, King's Royal Rifle Corps, and I had 12 weeks of um, infantry training there. And uh, after uh, some some um, examination, it appeared that I would have made a a um, tank wireless operator. And so I was posted to Barnard Castle to be a driver operator on tanks. But on the notice board it said, um, would anybody like to volunteer for, for parachute duties? They'll give you two shillings a day extra. And I thought, two shillings a day extra on top of the... I think we were getting about three shillings at the time. I thought, well... Yes, that'll do me, so put me down. And uh, then I was posted, posted to the 2nd Battalion. I went to A Company and um, into the platoon of a 
an officer called Lieutenant Jack Crayburn. And uh, after a couple of months with him, I decided that he would get me killed because he wanted to win a military cross. So I thought, well, the best thing for me to do is to go and see the the sergeant, the signal sergeant of the battalion. So I saw the signal, signal sergeant of the battalion up to Stoke Rochford, and I said, I'm a trained radio operator. Have you any vacancies? And he said, yes, come over. So I joined the signal section, signal platoon of the uh, battalion. And it was a very pleasant 1944. And off we went on the 17th of September, a lovely all Sunday morning. We were up, up before it was light. It was um, early breakfast off to Saltby Aerodrome and then in the air and off to Arnhem, dropping there, I think, about quarter to two in the afternoon. Just like an exercise in, uh, in, in England. Unbelievable to land on foreign soil and still be... Uh, nobody shot at me. Which was which was rather good. Anyway, we I think we were down about ninety nine percent because uh, having been I was then posted to headquarter company and was with um, John Frost and we waited and the report by the radios came in that we were ninety nine percent down and um, John Frost said move off and we moved off. We followed a company on down on the lower road, um, we were held up uh, quite a bit by snipers and by uh, one ambush. And, uh, but we got down down there just as it was getting dark. There was a bit of trouble at the railway bridge before we, we um, got down into the town. And we got down into the town and uh, took the northern end of the bridge, I believe the... Um, Germans had uh, run away from the northern end, but of course they were on the south end, and the idea was to get to the south end, and uh, the A Company made several attempts to get down there, but were held back, and um, I had two jobs to do that evening. One, one was to go with my own Lieutenant um, Ainsley to see if we could find B Company, because we couldn't call them up on the radio. And he was sent to see if he could find them. And so we walked through the town trying to find B Company. But it was um, a black night and the Germans were firing white flares. And so it was like daylight when all those flares was on. And uh, we came back after a while. We hadn't found B Company. And I think near around midnight, the colonel thought the best thing to do would be to get a boat and cross the get a platoon across the other side of the river to to attack the the south end of the bridge and the machine guns that were firing there and uh, I went with the with the two RC of the battalion um, Major Wallace and we scoured the front and we went down the harbour looking for boats. And we didn't find a, a, a boat. We were, um, we came under fire 
and uh, he went off. A very brave man. He just carried on walking, but I didn't. I uh, I dropped to the to the ground, and uh, I'd taken a rifle with me, and I fired at the machine gun that was firing at us. Fortunately, it was a black night, and the machine gun had tracer bullets in it. And because it was tracer bullets, I saw exactly where it was coming from, and I fired, and after half a dozen carefully placed rounds, it stopped firing. I then got up and walked on. Tried to catch up with uh, Major Wallace, but I was unsuccessful. I didn't find him, but I walked into a, um, a group a section of um, military police who were bringing in 22 prisoners of war. And so I hailed this sergeant and said, where are you going? And he said, we're going through to the police station. I said, well, I'll join you. So I got on the end of the line of these 22 prisoners and uh, we took them through the town in, into the police station. Wow, what a uh, what a different type of breed, hey, in World War One people. Yeah, and, and it's yeah. he's so quotable too. I, I don't know, he's just he's obviously a, an elderly man, but he's yes. so deadpan in these understated quotes. I, I keep writing down in my notes like, obviously, it wasn't very nice. Yeah, <laughs> in reference to the war, <laughs> it's very English. Yeah, very right. very English. Uh, that time I got, oh, you're, you're going to the police station with with all these prisoners of war. Just join you. Yeah, <laughs> I just hop on the back of the yeah, line just, of the of the prisoners. Yeah, I just hopped on with all the the prisoners of war. Like, damn. <laughs> yeah, was super casual. With being like so gentle and and in how he speaks and things like that. But he's very assertive in in all the things he's done. Like he's like you said, jumped on with the prisoners and uh, took down that machine gun. Like that was a really amazing moment. Yeah, he's he could like, have embellished that a little bit more, but he just right. Yeah. Yeah, he just, yeah. he was just, just very humble about it. He's mm-hmm, like, yeah. I saw where it was coming from and I just shot Took at it. Shot, you know? <laughs> he didn't glorify anything that he no, said so far. He's no, not glorified he, a single thing. And good good on him for, obviously, he's lived a lifetime where he does not need to glorify the taking of a life of another right. person, German or otherwise. Yeah. So really good on him for handling it with composure. Uh, does anyone else really want to know what the fuck happened to Wallace? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I assume that he got taken out, but wow, that's... Yeah, that's my assumption is he's just yeah. in, in the trenches. You now he's gone. Yeah. He's, but I'm super curious. Like, it's just, again, really casual. Just like, yeah, I tried to catch up with him, but I was unsuccessful. Yeah, and the fact... Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and the, well, he couldn't find him, so he couldn't yeah. tell you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that even the Wallace guy, like, just, he's like, oh, they're shooting at me. I'm just, I'm just going to keep going. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, you get down. The more I listen to it as well, because obviously I know what, what's what's coming, but um, the more I'm like, oh, yeah, if anyone was going to do something, it was going to be him. Just a little boating for the for the next section. Yeah. But yeah, for, like for telling, really telling, yeah. Smart yeah. fellow. Yeah. Like even at the beginning of that, talking about how he switched because he thought that officer was going to get him killed. Exactly. So right. he yeah. talked to Very the sergeant and yeah. said, guess what? I have th- these skills. Can I come with you? And he said, absolutely. You have something open. You okay. know? Yeah. Because I can't see that happening nowadays. Someone being like, oh, I don't like this guy. I'm going to go talk to someone. It's his, his superior. Yeah. But I guess at that point, you know, it's a world war. Everyone's fighting. Like, we'll take, we'll, we'll take you. If that guy, if that guy, you think that guy's going to get you killed, we'll, we'll 100% take you. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. yeah, that that Lieutenant Craburn story about like, well, I I figured out this guy's gonna get me killed was definitely like, woo. <laughs> yeah, that's a 
Have you ever been with someone who's made you feel that way? <laughs> Not particularly, I no. can't really say I have. That is an intense to display that to another human being mm -hmm. and for them to pick up on it. Ooh. Yeah, on that <laughs> level, just, yeah. yeah. And like to just to calmly and methodically be like, that guy's going to get me killed, so I'm going to do something about him. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Assertive. Yeah. This, yeah. this employee has figured out how to get hired and all employers hate him. Yeah. <laughs> Find out next. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. What I, I, I picked up on it right at the beginning of that clip. In our BTK story coming up, uh, we talk about how Dennis Rader was actually really afraid of the draft and being in the army. So he yes. actually sought out the Air Force and kind of the, the opposite almost happened to uh, <laughs> Uncle Pete Ling. Uh, yes. Yeah, he, he sought out the Air Force and I, by some twist of paperwork, I assume, clerical work is still run by idiots <laughs> yeah. even at this time. Yeah, he ended up in the Army, which he obviously wasn't stoked about. Uh, yeah, the uh, the reason why he ended up in the Army, sorry, I didn't have that particular piece of audio, was he was too young. He, he always wanted to be in the Air Force and he'd write in as a youngster, like under, under the age of 18, be like, I want to be in the, I want to be in the Air Force. And they're like, you're way too young right now. Just wait and you'll get in. So he was that's why he was like hoping to get to the Air Force. But nope, they were like, Army's got the space. You go into the Army. Mm -hmm. It wasn't yeah. really a choice at that point. Do, do we know if it was a draft at that point? 100% draft, yeah. He, it got, was draft. he got his draft okay. papers, yeah. Oh, God. When he so, turned 18, he so got his draft So it was a papers. draft. Oh, yeah. And he was aiming for the Air Force. And then the they were like, nah, Army. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's Once where you're war, needed. A world war is like, you're getting drafted. Yeah. yeah. To, to quote uh, a very realistic military film, uh, Starship Troopers. Hmm. Uh, more meat for the grinder. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which yeah, is exactly. horrible, but yeah, this is interesting. Thanks for sharing the story, man. Of, of course, yeah, totally. no problem. So the next section is where things start to go from good to bad as he's stranded by himself for the, for six weeks with no human contact, struggling to look for water, food, and to survive. This has been good so far. This has been very oh. sad. Yes, this is. Yeah, we had a very quiet Monday, and. Um, on the Tuesday, the the um, the Germans assaulted the, the place, and uh, that was most unpleasant. It was um, very noisy, quite frightening. The um, the sergeant of the military police said, "I think we'd better throw down your arms." Give yourself up, and uh, and they did. The chaps who were around did that, and he was the first one to walk out of the police station, and they shot him straight away. But I made my mind up that they weren't going to take me prisoner, so I whipped up into the attic and uh, hid myself. The Germans came in and fired into every room, let let grenades go off, and did all sorts of things. It was um, a most unpleasant time, but after about 15 minutes, they left. They took our chaps prisoners. They freed their own prisoners, and I was left um, all alone in a, in a smoke-filled police station, all on my own. There was no water in the, uh, in the taps, and so I thought, I know, I'll... Uh, I'll try the lavatory system. So I stood on the, the on the um, lavatory itself, took the top off the system, pressed a mug in to get some water, and of course I shoved the the piston down, and of course it flushed. 
So I jumped off the lavatory, lifted the top up and scooped it out, out of the pan. Well, you do that when you're thirsty. You don't do that under normal circumstances. So I waited every day and waited for the uh, Second Army to come. They didn't come. And six weeks later, well, I'd been a Boy Scout. And so the, the uh, tiles on the roof, slates on the roof, had all been disturbed and um, then it started raining and so I went and got cups and and put them and bowls and put them under all the um, wherever the rain was coming in and I collected that up and I collected it into a into a jug and the sediment was unbelievable in in the bottom you'd be surprised how dirty rainwater is so I then got another jug, so I and gently poured it off, leaving the leaving the sediment in the first jug. And then in one of the uh, small packs that had been left behind by one of the um, military police lance corporals was a sterilize was uh, sterilizing tablets. And so I used those, and you use two. One um, sterilized it, and the other one, and but it left an awful taste, and the other one took the taste out. And so I was very fortunate. And I lived on that for six weeks. And and I then um, had a, went and collected a, a wash bowl. And I had a wash bowl. Um, and I went out in the early hours of the morning in the town to, to find food. And um, I found uh, some quite mouldy stuff. Brought it back. And so what I did... I put it in a in a rag, like a handkerchief, and I boiled, I put it in boiling water, and I boiled the water in order to kill the germs or the bacteria that was there. I, I went hungry, and, uh, but there, I thought that was better than, than going and being a prisoner. But my thoughts were, how can I write to my father a... First World War Middlesex man from a prisoner of war camp. I thought that was, uh, I'm not doing that. We were issued with um, 24 hour ration packs, and, and, and those ration packs com contained compressed tea, sugar, milk cubes, and a meat, veg slab, oatmeal cubes, boiled sweets, chocolate, cigarettes, matches, and heating tablets that you that you put on this little stove they gave you. And it was first class. It was extremely, um, uh, an extreme heat from it. And so I could boil water pretty quickly in my mess tin. And so I was able to cook um, anything that I found. Yeah, that was quite the uh, quite the turnaround. Most unpleasant. Yeah, most unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> I know he's, he has a way with words. You know, really unpleasant. He really does have a way with words. Yeah. Yeah. He almost dramatically overstates it, but but really well conveys the drama of what he underwent. Yeah. He's like mastered sarcasm almost. Oh yeah. To a, to a whole new level. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, just how he did it so calm. Well, I mean, I don't know how calm it actually was, in, yeah. but the way he's retelling it, it was like it was very calm and he was, you know, very collective. And, you know, would I have instantly thought to go to the laboratory? I would probably would have stayed up in that roof for at least 24 hours before before yeah. coming down to go. You're not 15, 20 minutes later, you know. I think he was very resourceful with the he things really that was, he did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, jumped up into the attic, you know, to be left alone and then drinking from the lavatory, then the cups and bowls for to collect the rainwater. Yeah, yeah. very resourceful. Yeah. That's the sediment in the water. with the the And it's good to have those ration packs, though. It is good to have those ration those packs. Those are golden. Yes. The, uh, I love how, what a telling time it was for those ration packs, like <laughs> smokes. Yeah. Uh, tea, milk, and sugar. Oh, of course, tea, milk, <laughs> and sugar is a staple in the UK. Let's be honest. Here. Oh yeah. yeah, oatmeal, meat. Yeah, that was that was quite the ration pack. I, I loved the story about the the heating tablets. I had no idea that anything like that existed or was used. No, uh, yeah. let alone the the purification tablets. That was interesting too. Whereas you know, one to to purify it, but it tastes like shit, mm-hmm. and then another to actually enjoy it. You know, get that fresh BC spring water taste. Yeah, you want to enjoy the water that you've just sterilized, otherwise you're not going to drink it. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, why aren't you just drinking your own pee? Come on. Yeah, yeah realistically. <laughs> Bear Grylls, get out of here. We don't want you here, Bear Grylls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, the things that he... And it, well, our entire family has gone through scouting. My granddad, so his brother was a was a scout leader and went through scouting all the same time. It's funny to hear him talk because he all I hear is my granddad. They yeah. talk, they're, they're very similar. Like their, their voices, if I didn't know who it was, I would have said it was my granddad. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. The siblings have that kind of yeah. same sound. It's weird. I don't know how I would have fed, especially now. Like, we're not we're not taught those unless we, like, go to seek out to be a scout or we're not taught those, like, survival. The survival, like, task, you know, simple things just like, okay, how are you going to find water? How are you going to find food? Like, is that going to be the first thing that comes across my mind the second I'm, like, trapped somewhere? No, something like 99.99% of people can't even build a fire. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Let that's... alone, like, know to purify rainwater. Yeah. They, they would see the sediment at the bottom and they'd pour it out and be like, oh, well, I should go find some more water. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. There was a part, not on this audio, I had to, it was an hour and a half into it, I had to chop it down a little bit. He did find a big sack of onions, but they were like, they were starting to rot and he was just saying how he he just got sick on onions because oh. it was just, onions also absorb any sort of like, if you're if you're sick and you put an onion next to your bed, it like absorb, it's supposed to like pull out, the, like absorb this anything in the air. So I can imagine him not loving those onions. <laughs> magic, got it. Magic, yeah, pretty much yeah. magic, yeah. So good for you, but so hard on the system too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I think a, a very poignant thing he said was that um, he was not going to be calling his father from a prisoner of war camp. Yeah, he wasn't going to be writing letters That's from what there, really yeah. was his motivation to keep yeah. going, I think. Oh yeah, he just wasn't gonna go down. No, exactly. Yeah, he wasn't gonna be a prisoner. He'd he'd, yeah. ra- he'd risk starvation. And, yes, I mean he was probably more likely gonna survive if he risked starvation over being a prisoner. Yeah. Yeah, well, he had he had very clear evidence of that. the The leader of his yeah, I want to say platoon. That's probably not the right word. It was uh, the uh, B B company yeah. is probably who he was with at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recommended put throwing your arms down and surrendering. Is like, no, we're not gonna win this fight. Our only chance is surrendering walks out and gets killed immediately. Yes. Un- yeah. Unarmed, uh, arms up, presumably, saying, waving the white flag, saying we surrender. He gets shot cold blood. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It yeah. was the marshal of the police station, the guy that he saw at the police station bringing in the uh, the prisoners of war, yeah. 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 What do you do? It's like a catch-22 at that point. Like, okay, cool. We could fight, possibly. Don't know how many Germans are out there. We could su- yeah. we, we could surrender with the same odds, probably. Not all of us are going to be able to hide. <laughs> like, they're going to know someone's in here. Yeah. 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 Your, your great uncle was, was really just thinking like, nah. There's option C. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're we're going in the attic today. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he like R-rated and Frankton basically. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. wasn't going to make that comparison, but I'm glad you did because I was thinking it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I don't know if you guys know this about uh, World War II, but uh, they, they actually had it in a very famous World War II movie that I now can't remember the name of. It was either Schindler's List or some other one. Anyway, uh, f- forgive me, I'm not going to be able to remember it, but they, they had uh, a big issue with surrendering in World War II. So the Axis side, the German side, <laughs> uh, they would recruit, it might not be the right word, but if, if you didn't join up, <laughs> uh, you were killed. Right. Uh, so they had really unwilling people on that side as well. So if I'm not mistaken, I believe they were Polish. Don't quote me on that exactly. Uh, you'd have to check the movie out to get the exact thing of, of how it was done back then. I don't want to quote it exactly. Uh, but they would have people dressed up in these Axis uniforms, uh, not even speaking German, uh, saying that they surrender. But unfortunately, the Allies primarily English speaking, would see someone in, in the SS uniform and, and shoot them down. Mm. And they, they were screaming in Polish, we surrender, we're not with them, please spare us, take us home. And yeah, they'd shoot them cold blood. And that was, that was actually portrayed on the movie. Uh, oh. It wasn't really said out loud. Uh, it wasn't one of those things where it was like shoved down your throat or anything. Uh, all The only thing that really clued you into this was the subtitles and the fact that it said in Polish. That's what it would, That's how they portrayed that in the movie. Wow. Mm. And other than that, they they just saw Germans and then they shot Germans. Yeah, yeah. wow. So it's a, it's a horrifying thing. The, the war was endlessly complicated. Uh, anyone who simplifies it is just plain incorrect. But yeah, it was a horrifically tragic uh, oh, on yeah. every count. Understatement. It was yeah, absolutely. definitely an understatement. Yeah. It was most unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. even that's an understatement. Yeah. But yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. The next snippet is going to be where he actually meets face to face with the Holland resistance. So there's a couple, a couple of guys that he meets, and now that now he's on the way trying to get you out of out of the city. By you, I mean my great uncle. I was watching them. The Germans were coming in pretty, uh, pretty regularly because they were coming back. Uh, they were looting through the town, so uh, they were um, coming in looking and taking any small things that they they wanted. So that was my contact with humans. Now I had more, um, I had rats up in this attic. Uh, when I'm laying there all uh, quiet, I heard them running across, uh, running across the rafters. I took the skylight off so that I, first of all, and there was a, a rather large skylight, about a, a metre square, and I took this off so that I could sit on the, on the, apex of the roof and then I could look down and I saw uh, the the place down by the river uh, by the Rhine was um, all alight for about a fortnight afterwards it um, was a, a red glow in the sky all the, all the time for about a fortnight it burnt that area that, that's why we've got 16 men still missing and I think because uh, their bodies would have been consumed with that fire. On the last day of October, uh, uh, some people came up the stairs into the attic, and um, I'd been used to people coming up, usually German soldiers, because the attic was full of confiscated radio sets because no no civilian was allowed. They all had to hand in their radio sets, and uh, they they came up and looked, and then there were two Dutch police officers. They saw that the roof, my uh, skylight was off, and they climbed onto the roof, onto the rafters, and looked out. 
and then I saw them look across at me while I was laying flat on top of a small shed. It was a, a workroom shed, and that was my bedding area. The other side of this, I had um, all my cooking utensils and my uh, washing gear and also um, a, a sting gun, a rifle and some, some grenades. They looked across and must have seen something caught their eye. So they walked across the rafters over to me and looked and went away. I was covered in a dark green blanket, so I thought they'd not seen me, and away they went. And they came back um, after, I suppose, about ten minutes, and so I thought they must have seen me. I had I had my um, I had uh, a nine millimeter uh, automatic. So as they walked across the rafters and were coming in my direction. I stood up and said, hands up, pointed my, my pistol at them, and they said, it been police say, I'm a policeman. And I said something like, well, thank God for that. Um, what, what are you doing here? One said to me. I said, I'm, I've been here since um, uh, September, and I'm waiting for the British Army to come. And uh, one of them, they were, they were both lieutenants, but one was senior to the other. Um, and he said, are you here spying? And I said, certainly not. And he said, well, I can't help you. And But the other man will. Well, the other man was Lieutenant Hans von Maris. And he said to me, uh, I can't talk to you now in front of this man but um, I will be back and so I gave them some of our invasion money you were speaking to them in English oh yeah yes I didn't speak Dutch but I had a a, a, a leaflet that said ik heb honger ik heb dorst um, can ik you help and in, in Dutch so um, they went. They went away, and I thought, well, you offered them some money. Oh yes, I I, I gave them uh, invasion money, which I thought was uh, was my bribe. And then I thought to myself, well, what do I do? Do I do I leave here because I can't trust anyone, or do I have faith in this one man who said I will come and help you? And I thought, well. The Germans are out on the road. I can't go out. I'm in uniform. I used to go out in uniform, but always in the dark. I went into uh, shops, houses, hotels. I'm looking for food and, 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 and for water, any, um, any water I could find in a tank. I, and so I waited for this man to come back and... Uh, Lieutenant von Maris came back and said, the other lieutenant is a National Socialist. He is pro-German. He has a political appointment with us. And I don't trust him. It is better that you go away. Will you change into civilian clothes and leave here? And I thought, 
I have no uh, option. That's the best thing for me to do. And he said, soon someone will come back and um, he will give you a tap on the door, the uh, fee for victory sign, and uh, he will come back. I think it must have been an hour later that he came back. I had a shave and um, he came, he knocked on the door. Are you there, my friend? And to which I replied, yes. And and uh, I got in civilian clothes and left with him. The policeman uh, from Maris, he walked with his cycle in front of us to the corner of the road and then stopped and looked as a policeman would. And then when it was quite clear, he would move off to, to the, the next corner. And I walked through to the Velper Plain, Velper Plain 7, which was a... Uh, an electrical shop and the man who had come to pick me up was um, he was an underground man a resistance worker in the town there were something like 10 or a dozen of them who were allowed they were allowed to stay in the town in order to keep the gas water and electricity running in the town all civilians had been evacuated and so uh, I went into his house he took me in, into this electrical shop. He took me onto the first floor, pulled away a rug by the side of a bed, and there was a trap door, about 18 inches square. And below that, I dropped into an area that was above two cupboards in a wall below. The rooms below were the, the, um, uh, the dining room, or the sitting room and and the back room and between them were wooden a wooden door so you could doorway so you could walk through to the two doors but either side but between those two rooms was a cupboard about two foot deep six foot six high and then above that because this was a Victorian uh, age house was about a three foot drop so I could drop from this trapdoor into an area above the cupboards in the rooms below. So I was then dropping down about three foot, and I had an area eight foot long and about two foot wide, and that was my hideout. A hideout. A hideout, right, yeah. A good old-fashioned hidey hole. Yeah, that's, I mean, just meeting people. You don't know these people, like... What do you do in that situation? The way he, he thought about the question, he's like, what are my options? You know, do I go with these people that I have no idea? Like you said, like, do, do I stay here? Well, obviously can't stay here. Now people have found me. Or do I risk it with the Germans running? You know, yeah. yeah. Option D, the attic of the attic. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Inception. It's, an, it's a room within a room within yeah. a room. <laughs> with a hidey hole at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. That's a little bit horrifying. Obviously, they spotted him, uh, which yeah. is really interesting first of all uh, and then they come back and that that one guy probably saved his life there 100%. by saying like my buddy's you know very pro-german <laughs> uh get the hell out quick <laughs> yeah because he's yeah. just gonna bring trouble your yeah, way right he's, he's he knows you're here if i know you're here get get out before he can bring someone back they won't be as nice as me 
Yeah, I love the uh, the the V for victory symbol. That's that. I was I'm, thinking I'm a, the yeah. Vulcan sign, but yeah, yeah it's definitely the it, peace uh, sign. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> might, that 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 actually might be what the peace sign actually is, and I've never put that together. Whenever hippies would say peace man uh no one yeah. can see what we're doing but we are all holding up our our hippie <laughs> peace signs with the two fingers up the pointer and the the middle finger yeah uh the v for yeah. victory is probably it's what probably that what is. it is yeah i would not be i'd be shocked if it isn't i'm, right. I'm learning today this is great yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah pretty cool that is pretty darn cool so in this next clip he's about to talk about the resistance moving him out of the city into a farm in the outlying areas and how some of the resistance have now been caught by germans and finally making his way home the man in charge of of um, the German passport office, Hausweiss, said to Pensil, I will not renew those Hausweiss um, those for the new year. And so he came to me and said, we've, we've got to make arrangements to get you out of town. So not that I'd ever shown this Hausweiss to anybody. And so on the 31st, Nico and Klaus decided that we would take you and they found me a farmhouse to go to, which was about um, 12 miles, I suppose, 10, 12 miles, something like that. And Nico said, we can take you through the woods out of town or we can go up the main road, um, but we'll have to go through the control post. And knowing these two lads who had no idea of being infantry soldiers and knowing what it sounds like at uh, at night to walk through uh, woods with dead leaves on the ground and it was frosty and knowing the noise they would make walking I said it would be much safer if we go through the control post. So I said goodbye to the Pensil family and went up to they went with Nico on Nico's cycle to the um, control post. The young uh, German soldier said, Alt Minge, or something similar. We stopped and showed him the uh, Ausweis, and he looked, and Nico and Klaus kept, them, kept him talking, and uh, he lifted the control barrier, and we walked through, and... And they wished him off Wiedersehen or something similar. And uh, so it was quite simple. Fortunately, it was a cold, frosty night. And uh, he wasn't very interested in being a good soldier that night. And we had um, a pistol apiece. I taught them um, how to clean their, their weapons because they were filthy. They kept them in their pockets because they were full of you couldn't see up the barrel. <laughs> um, I taught them how to use plastic explosive. And uh, so after I'd been with them then eight weeks, two months with them, and uh, they were better, better soldiers for it. On the 2nd of January, Pensil had been asked to take his two children, two boys, Martin and John, to the German office. Paul Bresser said, don't go. Paul Bresser was the brightest, was a journalist. He had a, um, a brilliant mind. He said, don't go. They want you for good reason to take your two sons. But Pensil said, I've got nothing to fear. 
and he went and immediately they questioned them on um, you have an Englishman and the Ben Seal said no but they took them off to a, con- to a concentration camp and on the, that was on the 2nd of January and on the 17th and 20th of March Martin and John died in Mecklenburg in the concentration camp. Nico came back to what they thought was their safe house and as they walked in and they went there separate times Nico tells me he tried the front door but it was locked he came round the back door and the back door was open he walked in and, and got a gun put in his back and they took him into one of the rooms and they said to him the first words where have you Bob the Englishman and he said, Bob who? And they said, Bob the Englishman. And he said, oh, that Bob? Um, oh, that was a long time ago. Where have you, where have you this Englishman? And he said, well, I don't know, that was a long time ago. And fortunately, Klaus, who was in another room, had said exactly the same thing. It was a natural thing for them to say. They put them in a... They interrogated them, they tortured them, they stuck their feet. Anyway, anyway, they, class, in February, class um, had bad um, dysentery. So, Nico left class in, in, in this concentration camp. Nico then went off. And he became he he went to a local baker in the in this um in this town uh, this concentration camp area because the the local baker needed a needed a baker and Nico had served an apprenticeship as a baker so he went and therefore he was able to bring um food back for other men in the camp. And Nico survived. Uh, he was picked up by the American forces in May 1945 and spent nine months in hospital. He was in a bad way. But there were only five, I believe, of the 97 Dutch people who'd been picked up for political purposes who survived. That was the, the story of Nico. I, I went to see them after the war, went back there, and of course I was told this terrible story of all that had been um, killed after I left them, and how fortunate I was to, to have survived. Yes, yeah. a, a most difficult time. It was on the... Um, I think the 16th of April, that I heard that uh, British, a British reconnaissance troop had been heard, had got to the outskirts of Barnabelt. And so I said to, um, for Dyke, then I'm leaving you in the morning at first light. And Mrs. Van Dyke gave me a sandwich, and in my blue denims, but with my red berry tucked away inside, I moved off and made my way to Barnabelt. Um, I I set off carefully using cover where possible and after 
Several hours saw some movement on the road. I took cover and waited for it to pass. But a jeep and a motorcyclist stopped short of me, and so I stood up with my hands outstretched to show that I wished them no harm, and they descended upon me. So I shouted, Ik ben Engelsman, and then remembered it was time to speak English. It was the 49th Loyal Edmonton Regiment who were out on a reconnaissance in front of their battalion. I went back to the Canadian Division headquarters near Arnhem with a General McCreary who was in who was the general in charge of the 2nd uh, Canadian Army and he asked me where I'd last seen the enemy and I told him about Actifelt and his signals officer put through a call to the RAF and within minutes a fighter plane was over us and racing for Actifelt. If only we had experienced that air superiority last September. After telling him my story, he said, Well done, son, and that was praise indeed. Off to Zatvan, which was farther north, for interrogation, a new uniform, a bottle of whiskey, and I didn't drink, medical inspection, I was B1 malnutrition, and two days later, in a Dakota, I passed over the white cliffs of Dover, an emotional sight. I landed at Croydon Airport. Have you anything to declare? challenged the customs officer. And I rudely answered, Where the bloody hell do you think I've been this past seven months? And he stepped back. I had arrived home. Holy hell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's quite the story. It hey? was quite the story. And once again, completely underspoken. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that was praise enough. I think he, he probably did it that way because he would have just got way too emotional. Oh, yeah. And being able to tell the story, right? When when he choked up at the word finger, I was like, oh, God, I that was... I, I, I've seen a, a lot of movies and a lot of read a lot of books and, and you know, I, I did a story on the Toy Box Killer that we, we straight up deemed too graphic for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've seen and read some fucked up shit. But having him finish the sentence where he, he choked up at the word finger, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. yeah. I straight up don't want to hear it. Yeah. That level of emotion in that man when he said that, woof. Yeah, I was joked up just from him saying that. Like, yeah. yeah, I felt yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. It was a great story. Was this a was a great story. story. It was amazing. It was a great story. Yeah, what a journey. Yeah, quite the journey, quite the emotional roller coaster. Yeah, malnourished and said no to the whiskey. Yeah, it doesn't drink. Yeah. Well, he'd gone eight months without it at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe force you to drink later on, but not not drink at all. No, talked about my great uncle here. He was his audio was uh, nice enough to to tell us his story. A little bit emotional there at the end. He he, he went. He was in the Battle of Arnhem Bridge. He got trapped for seven months, as we heard at the end there in Holland before he made it home. Quite the emotional uh, roller coaster. Mm -hmm. It was it was it was really nice to hear him talk. From you know, he's not around anymore, but it was very very nice to nice to hear him tell us his his story. It was a pleasure being able to hear it, honestly. Yeah, yeah. thank yeah. you for that. Yeah, awesome, yeah. And we want to thank you uh, very much for making it all the way to the end of the story here. That's all we have. Thank you so much. What more Thanks. could you possibly say? Yeah, what more could I say at that point? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks thank for you listening. Thank, thank you. you very much. If you'd like to read more about Robert Peedling, he published a book that's available for purchase on Amazon titled Without Tradition, Two Para, 1941 to 1945. 
the story of Arnhem Bridge is also told in the 1977 movie A Bridge Too Far, starring Michael Caine and Gene Hackman. Robert Peedling was the great uncle of our host, Matt, and it has been all of our honor to have a medium to share his outstanding story. This story is too important for a lame one-liner, so I will refrain. Thank you for listening.